He'd go to like the trade shows and his booth was like the booth. He said people would come up and they would just shake his hand and they would be crying because they would be so happy that his product had given them the sorts of erections that they wanted. That's the journalist Matt Hongoltz Hetling. He's talking about a man named Herb of War. He spells his name E-R-B-A-V-O-R-E. In the early 2000s, Herb started to sell a sexual enhancement supplement. He called it Stiff Nights. And the thing that was special about it was that it was meant to be completely natural. So this is not being sold as a drug approved by the FDA. It's being sold like it's vitamin D or probiotics. Exactly. No prescription required. So I can see why his customers are treating him like he's a rock star. But I'm curious what's political about this. Like, what is the politics of stiff nights? Great question. (laughs) (laughs) The entire supplements aisle of your local pharmacy is a political space. Every product on the shelves is there because of political decisions made both by individual consumers and by Congress. There's a reason the Food and Drug Administration didn't have to approve stiff nights before it went to market, and a reason why so many men chose to buy that instead of seeking a regulated pharmaceutical remedy for erectile dysfunction. Today on the show, we're talking about the murky world of unregulated supplements, an herbivore's quest for an all-natural male enhancement pill. We're going to find out how he built his empire. And how he fell foul of the law. I'm Alex Perrine. And I'm Laura Marsh. This is The Politics of Everything. Hey, Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. I am excited to be back. My second appearance, I fully expect to learn the secret handshake today. (laughs) (laughs) So I was sort of lightly mocked by my coworkers for trying to describe this the other day. But say, for example, you walk into a gas station or here in Brooklyn, you might walk into a corner store or a bodega. And maybe in one corner of the place or behind the guy at the register, you might see for sale little bottles of strange pills with either pseudo-medical-sounding names or even things called Extends or Rhino or these other sort of odd names. What are those pills and what's in them? (laughs) So you're asking for a friend. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm asking for a friend. (laughs) Those pills are what's known as sexual enhancement supplements. And they've occupied a a particular place in the legal landscape for about the last 25 years. And what is in them? Nobody knows. Uh, That's reassuring. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of them might have uh, printer ink. Some of them might have arsenic or rat poison. Some of them, if you've uh, tapped into a reputable supply chain by good fortune, will actually have what is advertised on the packaging. The point of these, the selling point of these is that these are non-pharmaceutical alternatives to Viagra or Cialis, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the idea. It's all natural Viagra. Maybe you don't like the idea for whatever reason of going to your doctor to get a Viagra prescription. Maybe you don't like pharmaceuticals. So this is the path that you choose when you're trying to stiffen your erection. So this is a, is a somewhat recent development. You haven't always been able to walk into a corner store and buy these enhancements. And you have spent a long time delving into the life of someone who kind of pioneered these supplements. Tell us a little bit about Herb Avor. Yes, as odd as it sounds, Mr. Avor, who had his name legally changed to Herb Avor when he was a young man, is a vegan activist who is really into the idea that herbs can be used to enhance human functions in the bedroom. 
And many, many years of his life, he devoted to trying to find the perfect all-natural supplement that would make this work. Tell us about how the supplement industry became a thing. Yeah, yeah. It's almost as if the universe willed somebody like herbivore into existence. And, <laughs> and yeah, if he didn't come along, maybe somebody else would have. But the idea is that there was this kind of confluence of large-scale events that kind of set the stage for a guy like herbivore to come along and start marketing a sexual enhancement supplement. The first thing was that in the mid-90s, there was a passage of the DSHEA, the D-S-H-E-A, the law of the land when it comes to regulating nutritional supplements of all sorts. And that's everything from your probiotics to certain types of hormones to your kind of more garden variety vitamins and minerals and, and those sorts of things that you pick up at your local GNC. Matt's talking about the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994. The DSHEA changed the definition of what nutritional supplements were before they were considered food additives, which meant manufacturers had to demonstrate they were safe before marketing them. After the passage of the DSHEA, the burden of proof was on the FDA to prove an ingredient was harmful. And they did that by changing the definition to something that much more closely resembles food and how food is regulated rather than how we might regulate a chemical additive. Yeah. If you've seen the supplement aisle at your drugstore, even the vitamins will say that it's not regulated like a drug. And there's all these things that sort of make medical claims, but they can't actually make real medical claims. There's a lot of implication, a lot of inferring, and a lot of like tiptoeing right up to the line on what is a medical claim and what's not. So that was one thing that kind of set the stage. It opened the door for people to bring supplements, including sexual enhancement supplements, to market very, very easily. The other important factor was the internet. Before the internet came along, we dinosaurs will remember that if somebody wanted to sell a sexual enhancement supplement, they had to kind of like, you know, go to a big newspaper and, and take out an advertisement. And that's expensive. It's a big barrier. And it also holds you very accountable to the consumer and to the advertising media outlet. But with the internet, all of a sudden, anybody with a little bit of knowledge could suddenly market a product directly to literally millions, literally billions of people by sending mass amounts of email. And so that opened the door for somebody who wanted to market sex supplements to be able to do so you know, 10,000 times as effectively and as cheaply as they could have done before the internet took off. What Herb did, he took tremendous advantage of the way the internet suddenly allowed you to do a lot of marketing, a lot of advertising very cheaply. He pioneered spam. But I want to just point out, before the internet, maybe you get the Village Voice to run an ad for stiff nights, but I really don't <laughs> think you're going to get very many family newspapers or television stations to accept an ad for a product like that. But in the internet, he can reach everyone who had a, an email address by the late 90s, early 2000s. That's right. The barriers were down. The gateways were open. And, you know, God knew what sort of stuff would spew forth into that new digital <laughs> realm. And so, yeah, then you have this very smart, very driven, ambitious, young, tech-adjacent guy named Herbivore who comes in with a product and a dream that he could make zillions of dollars and millions of men stiff for hours in the bedroom. Before we get into his personal odyssey, I just want to ask, is there a partisan politics 
element in play here because you talked about regulation loosening up and we talked about the internet and that kind of implies that, oh, barriers were simply removed and then this flourishes. But in the piece, you talk a little bit about the Republican Party's role in enabling this kind of industry to spring up. A lot of conservative men or conservative people in general don't trust the medical establishment. And so they are looking for alternatives to a greater extent than perhaps the the more left-wing democratic position, progressive position, which is that medical science might be flawed, but is perhaps the best chance to get decent medical treatment. (laughs) How much do Republican politicians themselves actually come into the story? You had a lot of members of the Republican base who had an appetite for a medical product that doesn't bring you into your traditional hospital. You had people like Herb who were marketing products through emails. And then all of a sudden, here come these Republicans in the early 2000s who are building a new sort of political campaign, one that relies in part on building big email lists. And so it doesn't take a genius to realize that all of these factors might come together very nicely and give those candidates an opportunity to make a couple bucks or a couple hundred thousand bucks (laughs) by selling their voters and their email campaign supporter lists to the people who were selling these products. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. So who actually did that? There's uh, Alan Keyes. Herman Cain kind of famously mm-hmm. sold his email lists so that all of his followers were getting promotions for Testo Max. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Mike Huckabee had some sort of heart disease cure type thing. And it's become a little bit of a de facto component of the successful campaign. So take us back to the beginning. Who is this guy? Where does he start out? And how do we get onto this journey? Herb starts off as very much an everyman. He's the put-upon high school outcast who does not feel a lot of love or connection with his peers, really wants to kind of reinvent himself and became this vegan activist who learned some skills and who capitalized on kind of like his natural business acumen to start a bunch of companies. He became one of the most prolific spammers in the world. He was on the uh, Roxo list, the register of known spammers, uh, the top 200 spammers in the world. He was sending literally billions of emails to consumers for various products. And he also spun off into some other business concerns, like he would do debt collection, digital marketing. And at the time, the Wild West of the internet was really attracting these kind of like young, ambitious Guys, it was that kind of a uh, Silicon Valley vibe blended with Wolves of Wall Street. What I find really interesting in your story is that Herb set out to do exactly what his products say they're supposed to do. You just sort of almost describe a globe hopping search for an herb that will actually work to enhance male sexual performance. Yeah, he was a true believer. And he went everywhere, man. He went to the Philippines. He went to Africa. He went to India. He went to Thailand. And everywhere that he traveled, he was always looking for that herb or that blend of herbs or that extract or that concoction that would do this thing. At one point, he thinks he found it. That's right. He gets a package from an associate of his who knows how much herb cares about this quest. Uh, It's got some supplements in it. 
and he gives those supplements out to some people who are working for him at a debt collection office in India. And lo and behold, within a couple of hours, all these guys are giggling behind their desks, making <laughs> knowing eye contact, refusing to stand up. <laughs> so this is the moment when he realizes that he may have had a breakthrough. And so he immediately flew back to the United States from India and with a, a very small amount of seed money, I think he said something like $10,000, he started packaging and marketing this product, which was being purchased from a supplier in China, sent to an established supplements packager in Utah, who would you know, put the ingredients into pills and the pills into bottles. And then they would come on to Herb, who lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Herb would use that office as a hub to get Sith Knights out to every distributor that he could think of. I think you say he doesn't put what he thinks is the sort of magic ingredient he doesn't actually put on the bottle. He has sort of a euphemistic or a fake name for it. The scientific name I am not going to attempt to pronounce, but it's got the initials OT. It's a sort of fern, adder's tongue ferns. Yeah. And he didn't want competitors to find out that that was his secret ingredient. So he gave it another name of golden spear grass extract, <laughs> which was, as far as I can tell, just like a little bit of nonsense. And that is actually another reminder that the herbal supplement industry is not all that well regulated <laughs> because A, he could call it whatever he wanted and he had an incentive to do that because he couldn't patent it. You're not allowed to patent any herbal ingredient. Right. So he has this ingredient, he's selling it, calling it Stiff Nights, and it's selling pretty well. What goes wrong? <laughs> First of all, a lot of things go right because a lot of guys <laughs> – who had been cycling hopelessly through a bunch of similar sounding products without having a lot of impact on their sex life, suddenly started to tell each other, oh my God, this is the best product ever. You describe him being approached by adoring fans at like a conference, right? Yeah, he'd go to all the trade shows and his booth was like the booth. He said people would come up and they would just shake his hand and they would be crying because they would be so happy that his product had given them the sorts of erections that they wanted. And Herb, who, when he was younger, suffered from kind of crushing lack of confidence. He was really into that idea that he was helping other men gain confidence. And so he would cry with them. So you would have these two men crying together over a hard on. <laughs> so Herb is on a high, buying up all sorts of distressed properties to become a real estate guy, buying the private plane. And then one day the FDA comes knocking. After the break, we'll find out what happened when the FDA tried to shut down Stiff Nights. Before the break, Matt was telling us about Herb's success. We stopped right at the very suspenseful moment, the FDA raid. What did the FDA want? They were just like, hey, congrats on all your success with Stiff Nights. <laughs> <laughs> it turned out that Stiff Nights, as far as the FDA could determine, had a drug analog in it. Uh, drug analog is something that is essentially the same as a patented designer drug, but it's been tweaked on a molecular level that doesn't really change the impacts, but that allows you to circumvent patent violations. So he didn't have sildenafil, which is the active drug in Viagra, but he had some analog of sildenafil in his product. 
And that is why it was functioning as good as Viagra, because for all intents and purposes, it was Viagra. He had just been selling something that was the drug in every important sense. So the FDA came knocking. Was that a surprise? He knew the FDA had been asking him a lot of tough questions, but he had a reason to think that his product was actually pure. And the reason is that there were a lot of counterfeiters who were out there producing fake stiff nights. So even though this was Herb's dream, he wasn't the only person selling male sexual enhancement supplements. And he wasn't even the only person selling stiff nights. That's right. There were bootleggers selling counterfeit versions of Herb's completely unregulated sexual enhancement supplement. And they were virtually identical. So Herb says that he was under the impression that the FDA was very likely testing counterfeit stiff nights Mm. finding this drug in it, and then wanted to blame him. And Herb had no problem at all convincing himself that this was the case because he felt like the FDA was persecuting him because he was providing this all-natural alternative. So he thought it was quite natural that Big Pharma should use the FDA as a tool to come and stomp him out. So, I mean, he thought he was in the right, but this was also did not come out of nowhere. This was always a possibility. My impression is that Herb had legitimately deluded himself. He should have seen the warning signs, but he was so deeply married to his dream that he just did not. He turned a blind eye to them. So if you get raided by the FDA, what happens next? Herb quit. So even though he felt like the FDA was wrong, he kind of like withdrew from the business. So he didn't go to jail, but there were people he worked with who faced more severe consequences. Yes, the FDA and federal agents did a very thorough investigation. I'm not privy to all the ins and outs of that investigation, but I do think that it's uh, important to note that Herb was not charged with any crimes. They took his product and they told him not to sell it anymore, but they didn't seem to have the proof they would have needed in order to conclude that he was an active conspirator in this. But his supplier, a guy named Kelly Dean, he was charged with various counts of uh, re- related to the Stiff Knights Empire and Stiff Knights operation, and he actually went to prison. And so he spent somewhere between two and four years in prison and has been released not all that long ago. And he's the one who helped source this miracle ingredient, right? He had the contact with the supplier from China. Yeah. And so he was like an integral part of the chain. And so he apparently knew exactly what he was doing in a way that Herb did not. Right. Herb was just importing God knows what from China, (laughs) assuming it was exactly the natural ingredient it said it was, and selling it to millions of people. That was all he was doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And you and I might uh, try to vet that product a little (laughs) bit more, but uh, for whatever reason, Herb did not. Well, so it kind of brings us back to the packages that Alex was talking about that are available at the bodega. If the FDA came in and they cleaned all of this up, why can you still buy Stiff Nights and all of its various competitors to this day? The answer is that you shouldn't be able to, but you can anyway. Basically, All of those counterfeiters who continue to sell knockoff versions of Stiff Nights after Herb left the stage, they are still out there. And they are in such massive numbers under so many different shell companies and individuals and different products and names and brands 
that the FDA is just completely overwhelmed. The FDA is only screening something like 0.16% of packages that they suspect of having illegal drugs in them coming into the United States at international mail distribution centers. They don't have the people. They don't have the time for this. It's just a, an insane game of whack-a-mole that the government has all but lost. When we were talking about the story, Laura, what was the surprising thing you learned? Oh, I mean, I've seen supplements of all kinds over the years. And my main suspicion of them has been, well, you'll buy this elderberry infusion and it costs $25 and nothing happens. It doesn't cure your cold. It doesn't help you go to sleep at night. It's just a con. So I guess what surprised me about this was, oh, you could buy this enhancement thing and it really works. Because it's just the truck. <laughs> and that's kind of more frightening. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I would say that was uh, a learning moment for myself as well, Laura. <laughs> it really is kind of shocking that like, you know, kind of what protects a lot of the manufacturers, I think, is that their product at the very least does no harm. And it arguably does us all quite a bit of good on, on various fronts. But there are harmful products out there and not having any window into which of the ones are good and which of the ones are bad. It's a little like playing Russian roulette. So having established that a lot of these things are unregulated, dangerous, untested, you might be getting a drug analog, you don't know what's in it. And meanwhile, the thing that you want, we have various legal and regulated medications that do it. Why would you go to the gas station instead of getting a Cialis prescription? I would lay the blame at the feet of the system itself. Who among us is happy with our medical care system? We look at the prices and it's outrageous. We look at the opportunities for political corruption of entities like the FDA and, and certainly of Congress by Big Pharma and all the medical suppliers. And the system is just rife with abuse and potential abuse. And as you say, if you're uninsured, what's the sort of out-of-pocket cost for buying these unregulated supplements versus going to your doctor and getting a prescription for something? Even though the supplement makers are making cash hand over fist, it's an order of magnitude cheaper, I would think. You buy a, a pack of fake stiff nights for 80 bucks or 90 bucks, and you go to your doctor, and ultimately that same volume of product from Viagra is going to be 300, 400 bucks. So there's a nice code to your piece where Herb is offered the chance to go straight and start selling Viagra to, to use his brilliant digital marketing skills to make money in that area. And he refuses on principle. <laughs> yeah, he says he's not a charlatan. He's not going to sell <laughs> drugs, not knowingly, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I... <laughs> He was very, very uh, adamant and almost like insulted that someone would suggest that he should sell Viagra. Is Herb still <laughs> on his quest for the all-natural male enhancement herb? Oh, he is. He is. Herb has realized that he misses stiff nights. He, <laughs> he misses that feeling that he was helping a lot of men and making a lot of money. And so he is out there trying different combinations of plants, trying to find the one that works. And he says that he did find one once upon a day. He only had a little bit of it and it gave him an erection for three days and now he can't find it again. And so that memory is kind of driving his quest and his hope 
that he really is going to be able to come up with the all-natural product that will knock Viagra off of its lofty perch. Well, I'm I'm almost rooting for him. <laughs> <laughs> so the dream of the return of Stiff Knights may remain elusive for the moment, but I do think that his story has taught us a lot about the medical system in this country and uh, frightening lack of regulation. Well, Matt, thank you so much for returning to the show. It's always a pleasure. Alex, I had so much fun. You guys always ask the best questions. <laughs> thank you. Matt Hungolt-Hetling is the author of A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. You can listen to our previous episode with him talking about his book. It's episode 19. And you can read his article, The Rise and Fall of an Herbal Viagra Scammer in the New Republic. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Melissa Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoyed The Politics of Everything and you want to support the show, one thing you can do is share your favorite episode with a friend. Thanks for listening. 